Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hi, I'm Viv Ford and welcome to this month's episode of the Secondary Survey. This month I'm on my own, well not really as I have a guest speaker on with me and this month I'll be talking about telemedicine. So the person I'll be talking to is probably one of the more notorious persons involved in pre-hospital care in Ireland and beyond. I will be speaking with none other than Dr Jason Vandervelde a pre-hospital critical care doctor here in Cork, Ireland. Dr. Jason is the national clinical lead for Medical Cork and he's also the clinical lead for West Cork Rapid Response. So the Cork University Hospital Emergency Department manages the Irish Health Service Executive's National 24-Hour Emergency Telemedical Support Unit. Medical Cork provides direct access to specialist medical advice from an emergency medicine registrar or consultant through various service level agreements with a range of end users. And these end users would be any person within Irish territorial waters, that would be coast, islands and offshore, the Irish Coast Guard, Irish Defence Forces, the National Ambulance Service, Dublin Fire Brigade, Beach Lifeguard Services and Mountain Rescue Ireland. So without further ado, I will introduce you to Dr. Jason Vandervelde. So Jason, thanks very much for joining us here on the secondary survey. So we're just going to go through some questions about Medico Cork. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of Medico, about how it started up, how you went about doing it and who was involved and why Cork? Do you have enough coffee, Viv? No, but I have plenty of whiskey. Yeah, we might need some of that. It's quite an Irish story. Are you sure your your listeners are ready for this? Go for it. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll cut to the boring part out. But uh, anything kind of starting governmentally and uh, and whatnot, you've got to go back to an EU legislation of 1992. And if anybody's had any experience of uh, the European Court, well, you know, you're probably falling asleep already. But it was a typical yes, and kind it is, of day. It is only a, like 30 to 40 minute podcast, Jason. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we've got to go right back. It's a very Irish story. So anyway, so it goes a bit like this. So there was an Englishman, an Irishman, a German, a, you know, a Dutchman, a few Poles and a, a few Danes and a few Spanish, you know, the sort of story. But they weren't in a bar. They were around a, a round table in, in the EU and they were discussing occupational health at work and loan workers and their access to medical support and it went around the table and um, you know the Dutch stood up and says yeah you know, we, we've, we've got something in, 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 in Amsterdam and, and Rotterdam and we'll, we'll make sure that one of them will take over nationally very good in the Netherlands Spain what have you got well we couldn't quite decide whether Barcelona or uh, whether, whether, whether one of our other seaports would take it so there's Medico Madrid Fair enough, and it's an occupation health. Yeah, yeah, it's run out there. We've got a great service. Fantastic, Spain. Well done. Denmark, what have you got? Well, Maersk is our biggest company, and Maersk will be taking over the medical things. That's fantastic. And it was sort of starting to come and creep towards Ireland. And the French stood up, and the French said, okay, we've got, we've got Medico Toulouse, and we've got the service here. And the Brits stood up at the time when they were still in Europe, and they went, well, you know, we, we, we're between Portsmouth and Aberdeen, but we'll make a decision for you. We'll come back to it. And it was just coming up to the Irish, and uh, our representative in the room went, can we have a recess, please? Okay. A recess was called. You're mad. I, I've spoken to him. This is a true story. He got on the phone. He phoned his GP. Is there anything we can provide? Maybe you should phone Beaumont. You got into the switchboard of Beaumont. Anybody who's trying to get in the switchboard of Beaumont knows you can't get a hold of anybody. So he didn't get a hold of anybody. So he just rang Cork. 
out of uh, desperation. And he got on to Professor Stephen Kuzak and he kind of explained, look, you know, I'm the Irish representative to the EU and I'm, I'm, I'm here and whatever. We need something for loan workers. Can we just call something Medico Cork? Of course, Prof. Stephen Kuzak went. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and that's how Medico Cork was born. And I kid you not, that's a true story. And so, yeah, we set up under an EU legislation and we have a statutory obligation as a state provider. We're under the HSC, so obviously under state service, and we provide services for telemedicine to a number of state bodies. That's very interesting, Jason. And how did you set it up then? Like, was there a team put aside in CUH to set it up? So there's a part of a strength, but part of a weakness in terms of how we are set up in that all of our calls come through the emergency department in CUH as a dedicated phone line, and that was set up right from the very start. And we rely on the consultants and the senior registrars or the SPRs to provide our telemedicine advice. And as I said, there's a number of strengths to that, but of course, there is a number of weaknesses. So talking about the registrars and consultants that will answer the phones to the likes of people in the ambulance service, Dublin Fire Brigade and on seafaring vessels, as regards to the statutory services, how aware are they of our CPGs and what we can and cannot do and what we're licensed to do? Okay, so there's a there's a few questions in that. So obviously, we provide telemedicine to a range of, of, of services. So when a professional or a statutory organization is phoning in an advanced paramedic from that organization, you kind of expect that there is a certain amount of, of, of work already done on the patient. There's a certain amount of observations done and there's a professional assessment of the patient. That side of things is actually pretty easy because you're having a conversation with a professional and you're weighing up pros, cons, risks, benefits to the patient. I'm just going to park it there for a second before I come back to CPGs. Obviously, we take calls from the maritime sector. So when you have a layperson phoning or radioing in and you're having a discussion with this layperson or somebody in a wheelhouse of a ship or, or whatever, it's a totally different way that we have a discussion. And that's where one of the strengths are of having emergency medicine clinicians answering the calls because that's what we do in our normal job. That is our normal role on a normal day. And we've just translated it from seeing a patient in a cubicle to seeing or listening to a patient description on the phone. All right. Mm -hmm. So that's actually how we kind of take it from there. When you put into play the CPGs and you asked how aware are we of the CPGs, certainly when our registrars come to us new, we give them a lot of input into what can and cannot and where and how our CPGs were originally produced, what the abilities are or what the limitations are of those CPGs. But in general, remember that our role is to take a few big steps back we are there, we exist where the CPG structure doesn't quite fit or work for that patient in front of that professional or for that professional and how they want to manage their patient. So by definition, we are always working out with the CPGs. Now, bear in mind how long it takes for an AP to kind of get used to, how many CPGs have we got at the moment? Two hundred and. Something I, sh I should know. I'm the vice chair of FEC. <laughs> so anyway, like, like there's hundreds of CPGs, okay? And it takes a really long time for, you know, our, our paramedics and our advanced paramedics to get used to the CPGs that they work under. You cannot expect any other clinician, you know, a, a doctor to, who inherently works differently to 
a paramedic or an advanced paramedic. Remember, a paramedic or advanced paramedic works by CPGs or clinical practice guidelines in the state. And we can debate the pros and cons of that in another podcast, please. But physicians work from primary principles, first principles. And so remember, we're marrying those two up. So yes, there is an awareness of the limitations. But in general, we're taking a big step back, going back to primarily trying to work out what the problem is and then finding a solution that's acceptable to both the practitioner and the patient. That's actually very good because it leads me on to my next question with you now, Jason. Like from statutory services calling you, what is it you want us to say or to ask you? What exact information do you need? So I usually, when I'm going to the new APs and and we tend to do a lecture uh, and a bit of education during the the AP, uh, you know, the postgraduate course that our our APs do when they do their masters, and I talk about the fecking question, all right, and um, and that's fec spelled P H E C C by the way. What we try to promote is getting a, a heading, and this comes back down to effective communication. And you obviously, you, you've known and you preach, and I've heard you even talk about this yourself, of ISBAR, or, you know, the um, a good way of a clinical handover or clinical communication. And we really need you to get to the fecking question quite soon. So I'll give an example, Jimmy's fallen out of a balcony and Jimmy's gone splat. And the AP has done all the, what I call the bold face stuff, which is, you know, catastrophic hemorrhage, airway, breathing, circulation. And, 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 you know, got on top of the game, everything's going to plan, okay? And if they start the conversation with, oh, you know, I've got an 18-year-old who, who's jumped over a balcony and gone splat, and then this and this and this happens, you know yourself, you lose it, okay? And exactly as your, your I remember your wonderful handover video, <laughs> do you remember it? What video? The video education <laughs> thing you did for us all about clinical handovers and, and dropping patients off at the ED? I might remind you sometime. Or I somebody. don't remember that. Yeah, you, yeah, you should be blushing. But anyway, so um, I could call you a name now. But yeah, I'd have but to anyway, use the it, 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 it goes. It goes a bit like that. It's how you effectively communicate at the start of it. So it's it's hello. My name is introduction. I'm calling you from. Who am I speaking to? Yeah, you're speaking to Dr. Van der Velde here. You know, and Grant. Listen, I'm calling you about management of pain. Okay. So you get your headline in there. So introduction, and you know that's where we're at. Okay, well, tell me a bit about the situation. So the situation is Jimmy's 18, he's gone over the balcony, he's gone splat, I've done A, B, C, D, E, and you know I've now got him onto a VAC mat, but um, I've kind of maxed out on my analgesia that I can give. I'm particularly worried about blah, 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 blah. My, okay, just what is blood pressure? What is that? So that's the situation, okay? Fine, get through that. But you've already gone right at the start. You've said, I'm calling you about pain management. I'm not calling you about the airway management for Jimmy. I'm not talking about his head injury management. It's a very specific question that you're asking. Okay, and you go through the situation. You do a bit of background. So I'll tell you what, Jimmy is fit and healthy. He's, uh, you know, got no comorbidities. He's got this, this, and this. Right, okay. And then we really want you to make some sort of a, a clinical decision yourself. ISBA, my assessment of Jimmy is he's this 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 and that and he probably requires you know you come to the r of isbar the recommendation you know he probably requires a little bit more morphine or maybe we switch to ketamine as as our analgesia i'm just a bit concerned about this what do you think that would be a good telemedicine interaction because it shows that the practitioner 
has, has summed up the situation well, they're communicating well, they have a clinical question that they're going to ask, you know, they've gone through their fecking CPGs and they've got to that point where you're having a good discussion with a colleague. Our role then in Medicare Cork is to take that step back. Not undermining. Oh, no. And not kind of thing, but we're saying to the, you know, we're saying to the practitioner, you know, what was the last blood pressure? What was the last this? Have you tried this and this? Tell me something. Where do you think the pain's coming from? Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to say. I think his pain's coming from. And, you know, we, we'll then take you back, right back through there, and you've done this, 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 and this. I actually, I, I, I agree with your recommendation. I think ketamine's the way forward. Do you want to try and add in this, this, and that? And that's how the conversation should go. It should be a, a collegial conversation between, and let's face it, two senior practitioners. One is a specialist in pre-hospital medicine, and the other one is being a specialist in emergency medicine, in hospital medicine. And it, that, to me, is a successful telemedicine interaction. So with clear communication, following the ISBAR thing, there's a recommendation at the bottom, and we're coming to a, you know, a collegial decision on what, what best patients manage. Now, you got the laugh, you got the, you know, I know you, I you. We've been through many interactions which aren't as successful. Mm-hmm. And that generally comes down to individuals and individual, you know, communication styles and, and, and whatnot. And of course, those telemedicine interactions often are not satisfactory to everybody. But in general, you know, and I do, I, I, I'm, I, I listen to absolutely all of them, you know, and I try to iteratively improve the way these communication steps go. And I, and I, and I discuss with both practitioners um, in the pre-hospital field, and I discuss with my own colleagues in the emergency department how possibly things could go better. But yeah. But I find it's very good because like I found it, it's always been supportive. I'd ask a question, can I do this like my plan is that you ring up with your own plan in mind. You just need the kind of reassurance that you're doing the right thing and you're going down the correct path yourself, which leads me to the term that you hate to use for the medical cork line. You better not use that term. He goes apoplectic when he hears this. He no, no, hates the term don't. medical oversight. Oh, you, you had to use that word. Yes. Um, all right. Look, anybody who... Going forward, Verve, now anybody who uses that word, I'm, I'm calling for a bit of medical oversight. Sorry, guys, but as master's degree level practitioners, do you want me to call you an ambulance driver? <laughs> well, I got my mortgage by saying I'm an ambulance driver. I didn't get my mortgage saying I was an advanced paramedic, believe it or not. <laughs> Listen, whatever floats the the businessman's uh, uh, boat, you know, the bank's boat. Look, I'm sorry, stop, stop, um, stop right there. There's this complete misconception out there that you're looking for medical oversight. That term is frankly degrading to the professionals that our paramedics and our advanced paramedics are, okay? We have gone through, wars have been fought over the fecking table, over how and what and and how pre-hospital profession is regulated, set up and established under statutory instruments in this country. Practitioners need to be proud of the fact that we have a regulator that is set up under statutory instrument. Practitioners need to be proud that one of the few countries, in fact, one of the only countries that I know of in this world where practitioners are literally administering medication 
under their own steam and under their own license, okay? It is absolutely unique. You do not need medical oversight as in other countries around the world. And to talk about having medical oversight completely ignores a lot of water under the bridge and really, really hard work that's gone across that fecking table, setting up and establishing the clinical practice guidelines that you work under, the triple lock system, you know, the CPD, which is coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. We've been hearing about that for years. Yeah. <laughs> the education to master's degree level, okay, and degree paramedicine is coming. Okay, we've come a huge, huge way. What you are doing, you work under clinical practice guidelines. If you wish to deviate from those clinical practice guidelines, you can. All right, you just need to be able to explain why. Okay, and we have a support mechanism in the state if you're a statutory provider that allows you to have a discussion with a registered medical practitioner who may or may not agree with the way you want to do things, who may provide additional advice, and then it's not under clinical oversight that you are stepping out of your CPGs. It's a collective discussion between two colleagues, all right, and that is recorded on paper, and those two colleagues agree. All right, because you can disagree with me as an AP viv if I say to you, well, actually, I just want you to just bang in 500 a ketamine and walk away. <laughs> you know, you yeah. would say, hang on, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And you're quite within your right. Yeah. Okay. And then as two professionals, we can actually discuss why you shouldn't be doing that. Because to say medical oversight means that I'm telling you that you are going to do this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a All good right? point. Yeah. And, and we, I'm sorry, but we light years away from that sort of nanny state or the Americanized system of doing it. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that we don't appreciate here, those of us who worked or are working in the statutory services, is that we're we're pretty autonomous in what we can do. And it's a very, very unique thing. And that's where I think that the Irish pre-hospital services are way ahead of other countries. You light yours ahead. Now, we have issues. Mm-hmm. And we are resolving those issues, and we're working extremely hard to resolve issues. In particular, one of our, one of the biggest issues that we face is the lack of protected title in this country. Mm-hmm. And we really need to be working towards getting the primary legislation passed, and this is all on the table of the Department of Health at the moment, by the way, for the specialist grade of paramedicine in this country. Because by going to that specialist grade of paramedicine in this country, we open quite literally prescribers rights so i think it's safe to say jason that we should never ever use the term medical oversight again i think i was reasonably restrained (laughs) 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 look guys i mean okay i I don't know if this is widely known i was a paramedic myself you know i i I went through you know the the whole college and bits and pieces in south africa myself and um you know i think for the profession and the way the profession is going, we, we really need to take a bit of pride and be very thankful for what we have and, you know, be pushing forward to ensure that we have the strengthened regulation and the strengthened professionalism of paramedicine in Ireland. Yeah, that's fair enough. So that kind of leads on to another topic now. We've established that our statutory services ring you for medical support and advice. And what other service users do you have? And can you give us some examples of why they would be ringing you? 
Well, sure. Look, I mean, go back to the origins, which is the maritime sector and providing advice for loan workers. And that's where the legislation is under EU Directive 9.2 of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we look after where there are loan workers. Obviously, the maritime sector is the predominant sector. And so we would provide advice to ships at sea. If in general, it's if they have an emergent problem. And we do so with our colleagues in the statutory service, which is obviously the Irish Coast Guard. It works slightly differently to how DFB or NAS phone in. We get the Coast Guard control rooms, for want of a better word, or Maritime Rescue Coordination Centers in Malinhead, Dublin, or Valencia. They would take the initial call from a ship at sea, and that call can come through by radio, or it can come through by phone, or it can come through by satellite. And they then take that call and put it onto a digital, what we call the X or an integration system, and they send it down the phone line to ourselves. So we're still picking up a telephone. And in general, the Coast Guard and ourselves, we have quite extensive kind of training between the organizations in just how that call is handled and managed. So they obviously look at a lot of logistical factors, because if it is an emergency out at sea, there's, there's different, obviously, types of emergencies. And certain emergencies are quite simply, you know, ship is going down, they're going to send out a rescue helicopter, and that's it, that's it. But if there is a medical emergency on board that vessel that is kind of in between, or there's a bit of uncertainty uh, as to the urgency or whether or not a asset needs to be launched to go and retrieve that person, the Coast Guard then have a discussion with ourselves, and we bring in the vessel. We can do things like bring in translators onto that call, for example, because obviously a lot of our European colleagues are fishing up and down our coast. We get a lot of Russians off our coast. But you don't mess with the Irish fishermen. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't, don't mess with the Irish fishermen. Absolutely. But it's a different world out there. You know, these guys are uh, isolated. They're, they're alone. You know, you're bobbing up and down in the Atlantic. It's a different kettle of fish. They don't tend to call unless there is a, you know, real problem going on. And, you know, it's, it's up to ourselves to try and give them a hand. Now, what might be interesting for um, your, your listeners Viv, is that vessels have quite extensive medication and, and equipment libraries on their vessels. So what do I mean by this? So it is statutory legislation that goes through the EU as to what you carry on board your vessel if you are a vessel that only goes short journeys, such as within 75 nautical miles of the coast, in other words, day vessels, versus vessels which have longer trips, so days to weeks, or more than 175 nautical miles offshore. In Medico, with our colleagues in Medico, Toulouse, Madrid, etc., we've done an awful lot of work, and literally only this year we've come out with a new kind of equipment and drug library into what they can carry. So, for example, it might surprise you that a fishing vessel that's off our outer reaches in, in, in our territorial water that's going to be out there fishing for days or weeks carries morphine, for example. They carry antibiotics. They carry a whole range of medications depending on the type of crew they have. And so they all go through a statutory training to teach them how to stitch, for example, to suture. So there's an awful lot that a ship's captain and a ship's crew can do, you know, to kind of stem the bleeding, to control the symptoms prior to extrication from, you know, the services such as the lifeboats or, or our Coast Guard helicopters. 
That's interesting. I didn't realize actually that a lot of the fishing vessels did have a lot of these medications on board. Yeah, I mean, it's a statutory requirement. I mean, they can't set out to sea without, I mean, as I say, there's three categories just out of interest. There's a category A, B, and C. Category C would be on every single lifeboat, on every single vessel less than 15 meters long. Category B would be on those vessels that don't tend to stray more than 150 nautical miles, the ones that sort of day trip vessels. And then a category A would be on bigger trawlers that spend days to weeks out at sea. So leading on from that then, how many calls does medical receive roughly each year? And do you have a breakdown in statutory services such as the National Ambulance Service, DFB, versus the maritime callers? Do you have those? Yeah, so look, we roughly were stagnant at about 850 calls a year about five sort of to 10 years ago. And with the increased use of our service from DFB and NAS, we are well over 1,200 calls wow. um, a year now. So, you know, we certainly are getting well over 100 calls a month. And, you know, that's quite busy. And if you look at kind of percentage-wise, we might only get one or two calls a week from the Coast Guard or the other services, the maritime community. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we would get three to four calls every single day from our colleagues in, in NAS or DFB. Yes. Yes. Once you hear that bat phone going off, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, that, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite obviously distinctive in, in the emergency department. Yeah. So, separately to the maritime services, obviously, we've got um, service level agreements with the likes of, in fact, we, we're busy um, renewing it at the moment with, with the defense forces. Mm -hmm. So, we look after our defense forces, both home and abroad in terms of their telemedical support. So naval service, for example, in the Mediterranean or our colleagues who are currently serving in far-off, war-torn and desolate places as um, the UN kind of mandates there. So we look after their telemedicine, their emergency telemedicine. Um, and we certainly do a lot of work with our defense forces, our colleagues there. And we would certainly provide support to, for example, our guard of stock units, our, our tactical units. Yes. ASU and, and ERU. Mm -hmm. um, we can provide telemedicine support to our mountain rescue teams. So it, it's quite wide and varied. And then we also have an emergency kind of obligation to our islands offshore. So generally speaking, the Coast Guard is responsible for collecting patients off islands and we would then work through the Coast Guard, you know, fact-checking things and assisting them with kind of decision-making. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the next topic is going to be a bit of a difficult, controversial one. It's mental health crisis and the sedating of a patient. Did you just put two topics together? As in? You just ran two topics together, didn't you, Viv? No. Yeah, you're a typical AP and you just go mental health sedate, don't you? Oh, yes, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've had a few calls from you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, but, you know, you have the sedation of a patient with maybe a head injury versus somebody having a mental health crisis. It's two different things, really. Absolutely. So let's look at an aspect of pre-hospital care, which is a challenging aspect of pre-hospital care, which is procedural analgesia and sedation. Is mm -hmm. that what you want to look at or would you want to look at the mental health? We, no, I'm specifically looking for the mental health because, as you know, because you've worked on it as well, the CPGs have now been updated for analgesia slash sedation. But, you know... So this awkward conversation that we're currently having, Viv, yeah, is pretty much that sort of conversation that we would have regularly yeah. on the support line. And it's partly due to training, mm -hmm. but partly due to culture and partly due to a fundamental misunderstanding on everybody's part 
with the Mental Health Act and the Capacity Act of 2015, which, by the way, has never been enacted in the country. (laughs) So, you know, we have an act which is brought into law in 2015, but it's never been enacted. Yes. Okay, so this is the confusing stuff that's surrounding mental health. So if, if I just pull mental health to one side. Now, we have in the new CPG editions two separate CPGs, which really deal with behavioral issues. That's correct. The one being behavioral issue where there is a diagnosis of a mental health concern or mental health acute exacerbation, where a patient has already been assessed by a mental health professional, either a psychiatric nurse or else their general practitioner in general. And a referral has been made under the Mental Health Act for an acute admission for assessment of that mental health condition. Is this starting to take a bit long? Okay, this is why this is complicated, okay? So there's a CPG which deals specifically with people who are involuntary admissions to hospital for assessment under the Mental Health Act, right? That's the Mental Health CPG. And there's a CPG now which we've made, which is separate to that, which is behavioral concerns. Yes. Okay, are they bold or are they mad? Well, the behavioural emergency CPGs have been around for a while, but none of the services none really the, have have signed off on them. No, because it's complicated. Yes. And because you've got this 2015 Act, which is hanging over us, which has never been enacted. And so FEC have separated out these two. And for years in Medico Corp, we have been dealing with behavioural concerns. Let me put it to you this way. Very, very, very rarely... Do we actually have people who are under the Mental Health Act as involuntary admissions, right? Mm-hmm. Where they come in front of the ambulance service for that admission. It's very rare. On those occasions, we would, and, and we get the phone calls. Need I just say that you've phoned me before on this, Viv? Okay. We get the phone calls to say, look, this patient, uh, the GP has seen them, and they're for an involuntary admission, and... They're going, they're absolutely distressed. We just literally, we just use the word distressed. Um, and, and can I sedate them? To which my answer is always? No. Right. Why? Because that patient is for assessment. The only people who can take that patient in is Angada Shirkona. So they'd be detained under the act to be brought to a place of safety for assessment. And all of the services have to get their head around this. It's very, very challenging. You can offer a patient sedation. You can offer that patient symptomatic control of things. Are you sore? Are you in pain? But you cannot force anything onto that patient. Mm -hmm. No, it's just that I've been in situations where patients have been going completely belubas in the back of the ambulance. We can't physically restrain them. the dictionary, belubas? Belubas, yes, I've I've patented this word, belubas. Okay, I like that. (laughs) But 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 look, let's face it, right? Normally... This is a behavioral concern. Yeah. You don't know. So yeah. you don't know whether there's an organic cause for this, okay? Is there something, a head injury perhaps? Is there electrolyte disturbance? Okay? So then you've got to ask yourself the question, because this is separate from the Mental Health Act. Do you need to manage this patient as somebody who is sick and ill and lacks, and a clear word here is capacity that's the word and that's why that capacity assessment is all over that new cpg and frequently when we get our calls is we will really go down this route and look for that lack of capacity 
Because if this person is lacking capacity and they're a danger to themselves or they're a danger to others, all right, again, you can offer them the chance for sedation or you can offer them analgesia or offer them antiemetics, in other words, symptom control, or else, guess what? Come along. The gods have to come and help. Yeah. And it's not easy, you know, when this culture hasn't existed. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think it's a challenge for everybody involved in the pre-hospital environment, be it the Gardaí, ambulance services. And it's a challenge for the ED as well when we ring. Yeah. And you're taking a very big risk. You're chemically restraining somebody. Yeah. And, and, and you simply can't do that if there's any question or doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. Now, if you've got a very clear case where there's a traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. or there is some absolute derangement, yeah. right, with it clearly this person's not safe, then you can look at procedural analgesia and sedation, mm-hmm. right, in order to treat the underlying medical cause. In other words, you're treating this person under, what are you treating them under? Exactly, but it's common law, mm-hmm. okay. Viv just put her arms out like as in a, like, I don't know what's uh, going on here. Um, yeah, you can't see that in the podcast. It'll be edited out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, no, keep it in. But, but basically, you, you, you're treating this person really under under best intentions as a patient, you know, and that is the realms of specialist paramedicine. And that's where we need to go to. That's why it's so critically important that we develop the critical care and the community paramedicine grades. Yes. Okay. And then you're doing procedural analgesia and sedation, all right, based on that other CPG with medical support. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're not taking it on yourself. Like as a pre-hospital critical care physician myself, I would tend to phone a friend. I'd pick up the phone and I'd be chatting with one of my colleagues in CUH normally on one of these cases because none of them are easy. Mm-hmm. And you're bouncing it off somebody who is distant from the scene, who's not emotively involved, who hasn't, you know, gone through, you know, the three feck off rule that I have. And, you know, yeah. who hasn't been insulted, who hasn't. And you're just bouncing them off just to make sure you're doing the right thing. Yes, because you can go really, really wrong. Say, for example, that patient's septic and you haven't actually gone through the... Pro- you, you can't get to them to do their blood pressure. You can't get... And yet their blood pressure in their boot and suddenly you fire in, you know, unbeknown to you, a whole heap of yes. drugs. And, and, you, and, and that person ends up doing worse, okay? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have to be extremely conservative. We have to be careful and we have to be mindful of the legislation but then also of the patient's best interest. And that's why this is tricky. And that's why there's those steps built into those CPGs to actually have a discussion with medical support and bounce it off and see if if all all, all are happy with what's going on. I think that's the whole other podcast again in itself, the whole mental health issues that we deal with both pre-hospital and in-hospital as well. Oh, it's it's a heap and a minefield. And I suppose if you come in it from a purely psychiatric perspective, you've got one perspective of it. If you come at it from a harm reductionist kind of uh, perspective, you will look at it another way. If you come in from an emergency medicine perspective, you look at it another way. And if you come in from an internal medicine perspective, you look at it another Mm -hmm. way. And I suppose it's the marriage of all these things, taking the best practices from various branches of medicine and from paramedicine and pulling it all together. That's where we, we're heading towards. We've by no means solved this problem, mm-hmm. but I do think we were getting there and, and we're getting there with a sensible discussion. For sure, for sure. So the last question I have for you, the future of medical, do you see it evolving more? Do you see 
maybe video conferencing going on, you know, videos from scene to ED? So this comes back to where we started. And I said, look, there's pros and there's cons of answering a call in a busy emergency department. So obviously the cons of it is that we're literally picking up a phone or we're picking up the Tetra radio and we're having a discussion immediately right there, right now. There has been zero and a lot of companies have tried and a lot of things have been trialed, okay, in terms of bringing technology into our interactions in the Irish context. And every time additional technology has come in, it's failed. And it's failed for a number of different reasons. The biggest being the kind of telecommunications infrastructure outside of the hospital is not up to video chat and video calls. It, it is if I'm going to call you now on your, on your, on your mobile phone and have a good video chat. That, that's very different. How helpful is it? I don't believe it's helpful. So how helpful is it when I'm having a discussion with an advanced paramedic who's on scene somewhere? They're a professional. I'm having a discussion with them. They're seeing the scene, they're doing the scene. I have not come across a single situation where I actually genuinely believe that video has and will be helpful. It is a hindrance. It is additional distraction. And I talk a lot about bias. And we've really got to watch ourselves with bias because the biggest problem is anchoring. And, you know, I, and I look at that and I see that and I just go down that route immediately. But I'm only getting a brief vignette or snapshot in that patient's journey. And really, it's up to us to have a professional conversation, the pre-hospital practitioner and the clinician, and generally put it forward. Where is video or live or pictures or, or photographs been helpful? That's been very, very helpful in the maritime sector when I'm dealing with a lay person, okay? That's where that telemedicine becomes helpful. I'm very reminded of a little study which kind of went under the radar and couldn't really be published because it was slightly embarrassing, where they looked at the activation in a city in, in Ireland of the cath lab and whether or not our paramedical colleagues, I'm not just talking about APs, but it was paramedics versus cardiology registrars and who actually interpreted the clinical picture the best. And by the best, I mean, I've got to choose my words carefully here. <laughs> Why start now, Jason? No. <laughs> Basically, we're looking at false positives and false negatives in terms of cath lab activation. Surprise, surprise, the paramedics with their really good training under our good friend, remember Danny? Mm -hmm. Yes, that was a brilliant training program. Big shout, shout out to Danny. All right. All right. Have I just given the city away? <laughs> <laughs> um, the paramedics actually did better than the cardiology registrars. And I don't mean that cardiology registrars are crap. What it is, it's about you as a professional being physically with the patient, getting the sights, smells, sounds, all of your senses stimulated by that patient's condition and building a clinical picture or gestalt. When you are looking at just an ECG, you don't get the rest of that. For sure, yeah. Okay? And if you're just thinking of a history, that's just verbal, right? So it's that whole clinical gestalt. That's what you bring to the table. And that's why it's so important to develop a practitioner, not just the, you know, yeah. telemedicine. And that's why telemedicine is helpful on the other side of the spectrum is that we are not biased by those sights, smells, sounds. Yes. And that's why we can ask the boring questions. So what was the blood pressure? And did you ask him about this? And you go, oh, no, I didn't. That's fine. We're not belittling you. Mm -hmm. We're able to stand back, be not involved and acutely involved in the situation and then be able to evaluate situation from first principles so pros cons that's a good way to finish up jason listen thanks a million for coming along and doing this episode for us we really really do appreciate it next time 
we won't have coffee and we'll do a podcast when we record whiskey and have a few mojitos. Can I just say the rising is coming? <laughs> so that's it for this month's episode of the secondary survey on telemedicine. We do hope you enjoyed it. And once again, thank you to Dr. Jason Vanderbilt for joining us. Hopefully you'll tune in to us next month. So take care and stay safe. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.